Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, August 29th, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hello. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So uh, you guys are uh, getting ready to cast our ways back into a Broadway theater? <laughs> sure. Have, uh, have you uh, gotten many invites yet? No, um, but the season starts in June officially, and I've been to 25 shows since then, so uh, so I'm not scared. <laughs> well, you've already seen Passover. Yeah, way back when, right. Yeah, I'm not going till next week. So. Yeah, uh-huh. so how was the uh, COVID testing? Did, did uh, COVID passports out the door? Did they ask you for anything else? How did it go for you, Peter? Yes, um, I've definitely been asked for um, for uh, verification, uh, the card that is in my wallet at all times, also a picture of it on my phone. Um, I have been many times asked to not only produce that, but also my driver's license to assure people that the name on the card is the same as the name on the um, license. And, um, and in fact, uh, when I went to the Rattlestick Theater, uh, I even had to fill out a form, you know, have you, has this happened to you in mm. the last 20 days? You know, that type of thing that you yeah. answer, uh, that I was able to answer no to all the questions. But that was the first time um, in the 25 times I've gone to the theater this season that I've been asked to fill out a form. Oh, and of course, they take your temperature, too. Hmm. So, um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, so everybody wants to do the best they can. And um, more to the point. Uh, make sure that nobody uh, gets injured in any way, shape, or form. So I have no problem with any of it. I'm I'm very glad to show that. I'm very glad to wear my mask throughout the performance, which indeed I have uh, at every one of them. And um, that's the way of the world. This is a small sacrifice to pay, I feel, uh, if one can go see live theater again. I'm the type of person that sort of tries to show up at the theater at 759, me too. Do you think I should uh, go to 758? <laughs> yeah, I, really, 754. Um, okay. <laughs> ironically, you know, I live very close to um, the mm-hmm. August Wilson Theater where Passover uh, is playing, and um, I do a lot of walking, and um, I have, on many occasions, since they started previews, walked by the theater, and they're letting people in really early. I mean, I think like around 715, the doors are open for people to get in. I may be off by a couple of minutes, but I'm not off by many. Well, in the last couple of weeks, if they've got good air conditioning inside, uh, getting in early might be a good thing. Sure, (laughs) sure, sure. I don't think anybody's sorry to get in there early, but, you know, who knows? (laughs) Well, we've made our guests wait long enough, haven't we? 
I suppose so. Yes. <laughs> so let's get on to him. With us today, we have a very special guest. Professor Dominic mm. McHugh is with mm-hmm. us. <laughs> uh, uh, Mr. McHugh is a professor of musicology at the University of Sheffield. He's published widely in Broadway and Hollywood musicals, including six previous books, and has collaborated with many of the world's leading organizations, raising, ranging from the Sydney Opera House to the Library of Congress. Dominic, thank you for joining us. You're in the UK, right? I am. It's such an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. And yes, I'm here in the UK. Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, Peter had brought up that uh, gave a, a great review of your book, The Big Parade, Meredith Wilson's musicals from The Music Man to 1491. Uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, first of all, explain that title. Explain that title. Oh, well, I mean, probably the people in this room are the, yes. the only people who understand mm-hmm. the, <laughs> the title and the irony of putting 1491 in a book title when it refers to this particular absolute disaster musical um, is, I think, quite amusing. But the big parade refers to um, 76 trombones, Meredith Wilson's mm-hmm. most successful song, probably, or one of his two or three biggest hits. And the rest of it refers to the fact that the book mainly um, is devoted to his four musicals, which get progressively less successful as time goes on in this poor man's <laughs> career. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, So it's not a bio, it, but it's looking, it does provide some biographical information because I kind of wanted to start with his 54 years before he wrote um, The Music Man, because people generally probably don't realize he had several other careers before doing this. So um, that's kind of the point. I had a friend who was into old radio shows, and he used to play me uh, the, those <laughs> Mer- yeah. those shows with Meredith Wilson and Tulula Bankhead, and they're absolutely hilarious. Absolutely. Well, I have to say that um, I had had a bootleg of 1491. Um, I don't know if it was where it was playing when this happened, but my, did it play like a hit? I imagine you have this bootleg. Um, the orchestra sounds like it's full of beans and Cheetah Rivera is really selling the show as best she can. But the, the audience is applauding like crazy, even during one number, um, during a number, not at the end, during they, they start applauding because either they're having such a great time or maybe there was a great set change. I don't know. I imagine <laughs> you've heard this bootleg. I have, I have. And and you're right to talk about the sets because actually that's the one thing everyone was unanimously positive about was the Oliver Smith designs, which I wish mm-hmm. I could have actually got into properly. But of course, because it's a, a flop and I didn't have very much space anyway, but it's quite hard to find out exactly how it looked. But I, I think that it was um, somewhat building on all of those amazing 50 sets where the set moves a lot and it transforms in a kind of cinematic way. This was supposed to look like a hit, remember? But <laughs> so, it sounds yeah. like a hit, don't you think? I mean, I, 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 frankly, you know, uh, with these bootlegs, I have no idea what they're saying. I occasionally heard, <laughs> I love you, you know, but uh, the, the sound is always so terrible. But, you know, I now think of these things as instrumentals. I don't even think of them having lyrics. I'm just interested in hearing the music and the audience reaction. The audience reaction is sensational. Yeah. Yeah, it is positive. And of course, they they spent a lot of work. They did a lot of work on it as they as the days went on. They they were changing it almost every day. So, of course, it was it was getting better. That's why they kept going. I think they would have just given up more quickly if, if it hadn't been 
playing fairly well but at the same time reading it and, and uh, read, reading the script oh. along with the bootleg <laughs> oh. some of it plays like a pantomime and then it goes very operatic and then you get Cheetah doing this amazing musical theatre type of song and so it's not quite coherent it, you know it doesn't hang together very well I also think it's not on a very interesting subject I'm sorry Meredith but <laughs> you know Columbus preparing to go and <laughs> and leave <laughs> yeah <laughs> Can't what you what do is the way that you do it I mean you know so <laughs> a lot of bad ideas have turned out to be great musicals you know, just for the sake of people who don't know um, the term pantomime in England means something very different than it does here so uh, tell us what you mean by your version of pantomime I'm kind of worried about what your version of a pantomime is. <laughs> Usually well, here it simply means mime. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why. Go ahead. Okay. So over here it refers to a, a, a kind of traditional Christmas type show, which is more um, a kind of fairy tale, like a Cinderella or Dick Whittington type of thing with silly characters and a generic love story and a range of songs from a miscellany of places and the whole thing is very silly but it's directed at families and Meredith Wilson's score for this show is actually incredibly sophisticated so there's a, a complete tension there between all the different elements of this thing not coming together. Now uh, Frank Lesser was a big champion of Meredith Wilson's doing the music man right? Yep. And um, but here's a guy who, as you say, is no kid. I'm um, at 54 is uh, considered reasonably old to be starting out in this field. So um, how discouraged did Meredith Wilson get along the way? Did he ever say the hell with it? It's not going to happen. What am I wasting my time for? I don't think he was that kind of person. He, he did give up on some stuff. There are a few um, abandoned musicals or abandoned ideas for musicals. But I think with The Music Man, there, there are drafts constantly from him starting in the early 1950s through to the opening. Uh, certainly um, the original producers, Fiora Martin, dropped out. So that was very discouraging. But you know he wasn't someone to give up he's someone that wrote a novel and the novel is dreadful but it got reviewed in all the leading newspapers and he managed to see it through and he was that kind of person so i don't get any impression that he ever nearly gave up although it was very difficult um i interviewed Sai fuel once and at that point i didn't know that he was connected with the music man for even a tenth of a second but he brought it up and he a very pugnacious guy and he was very pregnant well we really got screwed on that one we could have made a lot of money on that one we should have made a lot of money on that one and of course i get the impression that when they dropped it they said listen you don't owe us anything i mean good luck to you because they didn't think anything would happen with it is Correct. that true? That's that's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah, no, I don't I have, haven't found any contracts or anything suggesting that they ever got um, percentages, unlike Meredith's sister, who definitely got some royalties for a while. Did she get royalties because she was an investor or simply because she believed in him? What? Well, that sounds strange to me. Royalties. Did she help with the show? Well, she went around accusing him of stealing the idea from her. Uh -huh. So and and there is a, an early version of the script from like 1954. I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, where the gymnasium scene, so the scene where he does 76 trombones and um, yeah, 76 trombones in its very early form, that says um, there's a message on it saying something like, you know, these ideas came from Dixie Wilson. 
who was a novelist in the 1920s mm-hmm. and and of course eventually it became Meredith Wilson's Music Man but she wrote to a, a journalist this very very long letter I think it was about 50 odd pages long That's describing yeah. yeah describing how she'd done all this stuff and um you know in the end he he agreed to give her some money now so. did he do it to shut her up or did he really believe that she had a point who knows? I literally okay. found a piece of paper saying, you know, here's a list of the money she's getting. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, of course, um, I've been up to Mason City, um, the real River City. I imagine you have, too. No. No? No. All right. All right. Um, you do know that right across the street, there's a library. I mean, yeah. right across the street from this house. Mm-hmm. I mean, like 100 steps. Mm-hmm. So um, do we know? In fact, if that library was there when he was growing up, and if um, it, certainly that's one of the reasons the librarian figures so much into um, the Music Man. I believe it was there. Um, in terms of its role in the Music Man, that evolved a long way. So it was quite a long time before she became the librarian. She was a school teacher uh-huh. um, for years of the drafts. So um, the idea that she was always meant to be the librarian, which some people have suggested is not true. So it stuck in late in the day. Uh-huh. And was the reason because your name was Marion, uh, it rhymed with librarian, uh, that it was very euphonious? So that song came in early on. But at one point, she was the school teacher, and she kind of ran the library a bit as well. I see. But, but her, primary, her primary job was as a school teacher for a long mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it was about she's a real teacher and he's a fake teacher. Ah. Uh. Dominic, I have uh, recently come across a treasure trove of uh, old Time Life uh, recordings of American musicals. Are you familiar with that series? Very much so, yes. I have most of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, then, uh, obviously, you know, um, uh, each of them is devoted to a composer, lyricist, uh, or or team. Uh, For example, the Learner and Low one has... Uh, three three cast albums: Brigadoon, My Fair Lady, and Camelot. But for but one of them, the only one that has two different people or, te- or teams, as far as I know, is the one that has two Jerry Herman shows, <laughs> Hello Do- Hello Dolly and Mame, and then paired with uh, the Music Man, because I guess. Um, if they wanted to do one for Meredith Wilson alone, I suppose it would have been music man, Molly Brown. And I suppose it would have been here's love. Mm -hmm. One of the most fascinating things in the book to me is the, the story about a wonderful plan uh, that he wrote a song called a wonderful plan and he wouldn't give it up uh, very easily. Would he? No, no, he wrote it for the music man and uh, then it was cut and then he planned to use it in Molly Brown and it was in there you know, before rehearsals, but, you know, it was in there for a long time and then it was cut. And then he was going to call uh, Here's Love, The Wonderful Plan. So that was going to be the title song. And then it was cut. And then eventually it did play on the stage in 1491 where no one remembers it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've heard the song. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did a concert of cut songs from The Music Man with my students a few years ago for the, would have been the 60th anniversary? And yeah, we did it. Good song? 
Yeah, it's not a. It's not a- <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, given the fact that he believed this so much, I mean, or is this a case of waste not want not? I mean, <laughs> I wrote it; it belongs somewhere. That's uh, I, one would think that uh, with all this tenacity, that this is a really great song. It just didn't necessarily fit in the shows. It's definitely an interesting song. Uh, the, okay, you know, he was um, he was a semi-religious person. And the so, the song's lyric is inspired by a sermon by someone whose name I can't remember. And it's all about how um, God must exist because there's so much logic in the universe that someone must have planned it. So I mm-hmm. think that it's about how he, um, you know, liked the message of the song. Melodically, it's not very interesting because uh, it, it it is a bit like a sermon. And so it's sort of, um, it's very word-driven rather than tune-driven, which is not typical of his best songs, but it is kind of interesting. Well, that's... Sef- Go ahead. Several years ago, we had uh, Janice Page as a guest on our podcast, and Mm. she was the female star of Here's Love. And I don't remember the details, but I think she said that part of the reason that she felt it didn't turn out that well is that it was a very difficult time in Wilson's life. Uh, Could you speak about that a bit? Uh, his wife, Rini, was not well. Right. She uh, she didn't die until a couple of years after that, I think, from memory. Um, there was a lot of tension backstage on the show because Norman Jewison, the, the director, was sacked. And, um, right. uh, and it's one of those where I think there wasn't a convergence of... Um, you know one single vision on this show so mm. the sets look different from the orchestrations the there were several orchestrators and they the orchestrations aren't particularly coherent with each other you know the, there was just a lot of suffering and struggling they they he definitely or they threw out some songs which um would have served the plot better in this show and it's funny um peter's book the great parade <laughs> um, you know you speculate about where there should have been some songs and and from memory one or two in one or two cases you were right i think in particularly there there was going to be a song about uh, living on um living on park avenue does that sound something uh, like, yes right? yeah right yeah mm-hmm. and, and and it's a much better song than arm in arm and it would have happened at roughly that point in, in or in that scene in the show so uh, you go through these cut songs and think you know it may even today be possible to slightly to put this t- show together in a slightly more palatable way and to definitely cut she had to go back <laughs> Was that a trunk song? Um, no. It, no? I, no. It seems it seems like something I can see him doing it at parties. You know, I mean, it. Uh, it's mm. uh, for those who don't know, she had to go back. It's simply about the fact that Fred, um, the hero of Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, uh, is waiting for her to show up uh, at midnight. By the way, and uh, he he has a bunch of friends there, and he says, "No, she's not going to get here for fifteen minutes because she's going to do her hair. She forgets her gloves, all that kind of stuff." So it's very condescending um, by contemporary standards but it seems like a piece of special material to me by the way it's very interesting that when he says here she is uh, she's going to hit the buzzer right now she goes and opens the door and there's a girl still there selling cookies (laughs) at midnight (laughs) at midnight a kid is out selling cookies where's her mother 
I mean, it's just a bizarre thing, you know. I mean, so that is typical of the show, isn't it? That, that there's many illogical things in in transitions from thing to thing, and I think there's many good things in the show. It just doesn't. Mm. I, I don't know why they didn't iron it out a bit. It's a mystery to me. Yeah, <laughs> I remember he had a TV series in the '60s uh, as a summer replacement. Um, do you know about that very much? Uh, remind me the title. I don't. I think it was called Meredith Wilson and Rini. Uh, actually, would it have been the the Texaco thing that he did a sort of three or four part thing one summer? Where... It was a summer show. It definitely yeah, was a replacement. And he was sort of Debbie Reynolds was in one of them, and. And it was all very nostalgic. And Frank Lesser wrote to him and said, you need to stop doing this kind of thing because it's so self-congratulatory and you need to build up your body of works because it's much more important to be an artist than to just be, you know, this nice old man on the telly that everyone likes. But, you know, you've only written one great show and one good show. So get working, Meredith. <laughs> In fact, I do agree that he wrote a good show with Molly Brown. I know a lot of people don't much like it, but I think it's a very good show. Now, it may be because this is the first show I ever bought a front row seat to in the orchestra. And um, so I was just uh, just so glad to be so close to everybody. But still, I think Molly Brown is a very good show. You do, too. I really do, actually. I uh, grew in enthusiasm for it when I'm working on it as well. Um, again, they, they definitely had director problems there, but um, Richard Morris and Meredith Wilson, who the the book writer and, of course, Meredith just wrote the score on this show, um, they were working with a kind of single mind, or at least very collaboratively on the show. And I think it's a very effective comedy and it's entertaining and it's also kind of moving it, it's not it's not totally mind-blowing oh this is the best thing i've ever seen but it really has that quality of a a 1950s show when the quality was high things were so mm -hmm. competitive that you couldn't put a load of rubbish on the stage and hope to have a hit so um it was good of course it was good i imagine some of our readers um and listeners don't know that when music man was being ready that winthrop the young boy was actually going to be a spastic in a wheelchair uh, that he was far more severely uh, disabled than simply a stutter. Um, I've often wondered, is Franklin Lacey responsible for that? We hear the name Franklin Lacey involved with this show. He gets a tiny credit um, here, there and everywhere. But nevertheless, was he the one who said Meredith, a spastic in a wheelchair? Come on, that's much too severe for an audience at a musical comedy. Oh, everyone was saying that to him. Uh -huh. <laughs> Absolutely everybody. There were just letters from all kinds of people that he was talking to about it. And Kermit Bloomgarden, who eventually became the producer, was saying the same thing. But the, they sort of needed Wilson to um, accept it on his own. And, and I'm not sure that he ever did actually accept it. I, I could never work out whether he had a family member who was a child who I was see. disabled. But mm -hmm. there's there was some... He was really passionate about this theme. Like it wasn't just, oh, here's a fun idea for a character in a musical. Mm, it was mm -hmm. something he cared about. And when he was writing Molly Brown, he went on a mini tour and gave the money to a charity for disabled children. So this was uh -huh. after the Music Man had opened. So mm -hmm. it, it was more than just a a, a character um, idea kind of thing. But I think you might be right, Peter, in the sense that um, Franklin Lacey came on board and in the next script Winthrop had gone from being a character who only appears in the Wells Fargo wagon because he was actually in it 
as well as Jim Peru, the, guy, the boy in the wheelchair, and suddenly they become the same character. So oh. it does feel like Lacey probably found the way to make it work, but everyone was saying the same thing. Hmm. That Time Life series I was referring to, each of the albums has a, a beautiful booklet with lots of text and, and photos and essays and information. And the one for the, the uh, Herman and, and Wilson set um, has a be- almost a, f- a, a, a full two-page spread of a beautiful color photo, photo of that moment in the Wells Fargo wagon when Winthrop finally starts singing. And it's so it's so wonderful to see Barbara Cook uh, kneeling next to what was his name Eddie Hodges yeah yeah mm-hmm. and then uh, and then Professor Hill is Robert Preston is standing on the side and it's a, just a wonderful moment that they caught in a photo that I'd really never seen before until I saw this booklet. So Dominic, the uh, the book comes out just as uh, Broadway is about to stage a revival of the Music Man. Uh, uh, with Hugh, Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. Um, uh, w- did you plan it in that way, or did it just uh, <laughs> just happen serendipitously? No, I mean, um, I I do everything for fun, to be honest. Mm-hmm. The, the, on, the, only, the, only, the only things that, you know, it's hard work writing a book, and you don't make any money writing academic books. Mm-hmm. And you don't make any money writing books about musicals unless you're... Mm-hmm. Sondheim, I guess. So, uh, you know, I I wouldn't have done this if I didn't really want to do it. I um, I decided to do it in 2008, actually. So I was in Madison, Wisconsin, doing some research in the papers of Herman Levin, who was the producer of My Fair Lady, which is what I was working on at that point. In fact, I was a, a grad student at that point doing my PhD on My Fair Lady. And I had... Um, one day left a Saturday to go where I could just look at other stuff in the archive, or I could have gone to look around Madison. So I chose the archive over the cheese shop and (laughs) I decided to look in the Kermit Bloom garden papers because I saw there were all these script drafts of the music man. And so I spent the entire day just copying them all. And that was the the birth of this project really. But aside from that, the music man is my second favorite show after my fair lady. So basically it's the product of fun, even though it is um, scholarship and my job is to be a musicologist. So I'm frustrated you- because I was in Madison in June. Uh, they did a play of mine there. And if I had known, I would have gone to these see these papers. Oh, lost opportunity. Uh, they're going to have to do another one of my shows again. That's all there is to it. <laughs> so, uh, James, I'm sorry I interrupted you. What were you going to say? No, no, not that's all. I, I, so uh, some of your other books are Loverly, The uh, Life and Times of My Fair Lady, uh, Alan J. Lerner, A Lyricist's Letters, The Complete oh. Lyrics <laughs> of Alan J. Lerner, Mm. Uh, the letters of Cole Porter, uh, and also you adapted uh, and co-edited uh, the adapting of Wizard of Oz, the musical version from Baum to MGM and beyond, uh, and then finally the Oxford Handbook of Musical Theater Screen Adaptations. So uh, uh, a lot of these things are very American-focused. Uh, <laughs> uh, so what... What's your uh, what's your thoughts on on the American musical theater versus the uh, w- the Great British Invasion that has that took over Broadway in the eighties and nineties? 
Uh, okay, well, I'm not going to apologize for um, no, for no, 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 no. Nobody wants you to American musicals. I, I, it does cause me trouble sometimes because I'm really not American, um, and so I recognize that, and it, it was actually a particular problem with the Music Man. I recognize that dealing with American culture when it's not my culture requires particular thought and hard work, and that, I think there are one or two things that I got wrong and it, it, it so it is a challenge for me but I just find the style and the humor of this period from I guess the 30s to the late 50s maybe the 60s on Broadway to be just so appealing it, it's so interesting it's so rich you know to get Finian's Rainbow and Kiss Me Kate and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and South Pacific within such a short amount of time for example mm-hmm. it's just inherently interesting british musicals are interesting too and i i do like them but there's just something about this optimistic and sophisticated period in broadway history that i particularly yeah. love and and i don't feel i think that that's what ceased to happen on broadway and in maybe it never happened in the british musical there are some sophisticated british musicals but i don't think of that word maybe beyond noel coward and a few pieces from the 30s and 40s i don't particularly think of them in that light where no, I, I i guess you know uh, grab me I'm a not, gondola yeah it doesn't yeah. apply right yeah. <laughs> Right, exactly. And, you know, I would love to have seen the original production of Blitz because it sounds like the production was amazing and the score is really interesting. Yes, it is. And the the subject matter is interesting. But My Fair Lady. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just, it's just not, it's not the same realm. Um, (laughs) And there we go. (laughs) All right, Dominic, um, one time I interviewed an actress and I said, uh, so tell me how this job happened. She said, well... I wasn't being offered anything. Uh, my daughter grabbed me by the knees, my young daughter, and said, Mommy, Mommy, please don't leave. Please don't leave. And I said, Honey, Mommy can't get arrested. I have to take this job. And I did not print that. I would not do it. I did not want to embarrass her. Okay, my question for you, when you were dealing with these letters from Cole Porter or other people, was there anyone that you said, you know, I'm not going to print this letter because it would be too embarrassing for the person? Uh, I didn't have that trouble because the estates wouldn't let me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you were policed from the very beginning. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is there any chance that we're going to uh, see, a, see a, a book or books uh, from you f- uh, focusing on Rodgers and Hammerstein or, or Sondheim or any of the other uh, uh, great writers that you've uh, taken an interest in and maybe said in the future, I'm going to do one of those? Uh, well, at the moment, I'm working on um, further letters books. So um, I'm working on George Gershwin's letters, which mm. is fascinating. I've been working for years on Frank Lesser's letters, and we're, we're still sort of figuring out the contracts. But I don't think anyone would mind me saying that I'm working on that. The, the Lesser letters will probably be my favorite book ever, because uh-huh. his mind is the style of his prose and just the whole brain of the man is mm-hmm. a- absolutely unique. So that's great. Um, I'm in the middle of a kind of multi-year thing of writing one-off essays on sometimes very early musicals. So I wrote an article a couple of years ago on Climb High, mm-hmm. which was um, 
the, the one of the four shows that Hammerstein mm-hmm. would have challenged him to write. And I've just finished one on Mary Poppins, which is coming out um, in November, I think, in somebody's book. Someone's editing a collection of articles on Sondheim. And, and that is fascinating. So I, I didn't really see the need to write yet again about company. I don't, uh-huh. at the moment, I don't feel I have anything I can think of to say about that. But these early shows are interesting because seeing Sondheim's creativity evolve at the age of 18, 19, 20, when he wrote these things is, is brilliant. And people haven't really written about those pieces. I'd love to write about Rodgers and Hammerstein, but I think that I would need to find some new information to, mm, yeah. to make it worth it. I don't see mm-hmm. the point in just regurgitating. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, now, in terms of Sondheim's Mary Poppins, um, Mary Poppins can be a dark tale. Did he treat it in dark fashion? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he didn't finish it. And, and again, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that he refused me permission to reproduce any of the songs. So I, I wrote a draft of the thing, including, you know, four bars of this song and two lines of that song. And, um, and he promised to read it and he did read it. And then his lawyer sent me a message to say he doesn't want anyone ever <laughs> to look at these songs. And therefore, I wasn't allowed to reproduce them. But they're fascinating. So, for example, the, the um, Jolly Holiday se- sequence from the movie um, in this version is uh, a trio between Mary, Bert and the waiter and and Bert is basically trying to make love to Mary <laughs> uh-huh. and says, you know, come, come and make love to me. And she says, not while I'm drinking my tea. And, uh-huh. the, and, and the whole song just revolves around um, all of that. So, um, and there is a lot of violence in it, actually, or it's quite mm-hmm. a violent, there's a violent episode with um, Michael Banks, the little boy. So, and he adapted different on the whole different aspects of um, of the P.L. Travers books. So, well, in fact, I adore the new song uh, that Drew and Styles wrote, "Practically Perfect." Did he musical? Did Sondheim musicalize that moment? Oh gosh, I can't remember off the top of my head. I, I okay. think he didn't. Uh huh. But it's um, a very good. Uh, now, when I see the movie, it seems like that song is jumping out to me. <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the violence you mentioned uh, was there anything equivalent to that temper temper number? I'll have to get back to you on that. I, yeah. I wrote the thing a year ago, and I oh, went, sorry about that. <laughs> it's all right. I, it's just I have a feeling that this is um, news to many of our listeners that Sondheim would be writing Mary Poppins. Uh, so that's why I'm centering on it. Absolutely, mm. no, absolutely, and. I'll come on another time and, and talk all about Sondheim <laughs> and, and the early musicals. Because um, Climb High is even more interesting because that is, is a really Sondheimian um, musical uh, about a, a really Sondheimian character called David, who is uh, an actor who's kind of can't find himself and he thinks he's better than he is. And, and he's just singing all these um songs about oh i'm in a psychological whirlwind kind of thing so and that is an interesting show because he actually finished the whole thing the book exists the songs exist and so you could do it but he won't give permission yeah i'm i'm really most interested in those shows the ones that were finished or almost finished isn't that wasn't the brecht project also almost finished 
he wrote eight or nine songs for it yeah, um, yeah. and they've done they've done readings for it but um the, you know the, there's some bernstein in it right i think that there were multiple other collaborators and sondheim never believed in that project hmm. he he i've just written an article about sondheim and bernstein so that one is more in my head and um he uh, it's clear that neither he nor Bernstein actually believed in that show. It's just mm. that Jer- Jerry Robbins um, was desperate to do it. And they both loved working with him. But once they actually started working with him, <laughs> it wasn't a joy. So Sondheim mm. backed out, then Bernstein backed out, then Sondheim came back in and wrote both music and lyrics and then backed out. So Dominic, um, uh, where, where are these essays? Where can people find them? <laughs> Uh, well, the um, the Climb High essay is in a journal called Studies in Musical Theatre. The Mary Poppins essay is in a book that's coming out later in the year um, called um, Sondheim um, in Our Time and His, which is um, edited by a guy called Tony Shepard. And the Bernstein and Sondheim one will be in a book called Bernstein in Context, which I think is coming out next year. Okay. I really um, like those titles. Mm, I <laughs> really like them. <laughs> so uh, uh, one of our listeners has, uh, Tony Janicki, Anthony Janicki has uh, commented that, uh, let me read you his comment and get your take on it. Meredith Wilson in the early 1940s composed the underscore for two highly praised motion pictures, The Great Dictator and The Little Foxes. Both films were nominated for Best Picture. Wilson received Oscar nominations for both of his scores. In my opinion, Wilson's score for The Little Foxes is superb. Unfortunately, the musical elements, i.e. the soundtracks, were not preserved and apparently no longer exist. So uh, in your research for Meredith Wilson, have you run across these uh, any of this music? Well, I've watched the movies and I write a few pages in the book about them. Um, I completely agree that this work is outstanding. In The Great Dictator, clearly Wilson um, was overshadowed by Charlie Chaplin because it's a Hmm. it's sort of auteur piece and it's very much Chaplin's film from every perspective he's in it you know he was the guiding force in it but I think Wilson learned so much about the comedy and the drama and the characterizations in that film and he clearly contributed to it because I did find um, pages of score for The Great Dictator in his papers. And I I agree The Little Foxes is outstanding. It's bizarre, really, that he didn't write that and then just get taken to Hollywood and invited to become a Hollywood, um, you know, background Mm. composer because... And the other strange thing is I think it's weird he didn't write an MGM musical because I think he would have been in his element writing a Meet Me in St. Louis type of movie in that 1940s period and you think perhaps that maybe he did get more offers from hollywood and it was his decision to to not focus on that possibly in the war he was focused on um you know he was in charge of the armed forces radio service Mm. and entertainment service so maybe he was just so busy doing that and indeed the work he did for that was really fascinating he worked with everyone sinatra garland you know um bing crosby whatever um but I find it strange if he wasn't approached, really. But maybe no one thought that he could write songs, because although there were songs in those uh, wartime radio shows that he wrote, and he wrote one or two pop songs that appeared in the 30s and 40s, but really he wasn't known for that. So 
I don't know. I find it a puzzle, but I would have thought that writing four or five songs for a, a Judy Garland or Gene Kelly movie would have been the perfect job for him. And mm. where he's struggling later in the Broadway career, I think it's because he has to write a whole score, i.e. 15 songs or whatever, and the quality isn't um, consistently good, frankly. And that's the problem with Here's Love and it's part of the problem with 1491, but he wouldn't have had that problem um, in the 40s. And of course, musically, the style of um, of pop music in the 40s would have been more his kind of thing. Whereas when you get to Here's Love and particularly 1491, then he's suddenly very much out of sync with the times in terms of what he's um, writing. So before we wrap up for this morning, I wanted to ask you, uh, you do a lot of uh, looking backwards in your mm. work, but you're also um, you're also a professor who is uh, who has students who are typical college age. I'm assuming you know in the 18s to 20s or so. Um, so, what are the kids talking about these days? What's popular? Uh, what are you talking about with them mm, that is mm. contemporary? They're still mad on Hamilton, I have to say. Um, <laughs> shocking. We, we, well, it is a bit shocking because it's like, is it six years old now? Or, you know, it, it's no longer new. I, I appreciate we've not had Broadway properly for a while, so that mm. might be part of the problem. But, um, you know, w- what can have the impact of that show? The Just the cultural impact is unusual. And it's funny, my... Um, my partner's family are not musical theatre people at all and musicals aren't particularly part of the culture over here but we had a birthday party on Wednesday and they were talking about Hamilton Mm. (laughs) so it's there in a way that things haven't been there for Mm. a very 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 long time seems to me it was in the heights uh uh, have any traction there no (laughs) no have you been to America much at all what have you been to Broadway shows Oh, yeah, I've been probably 15 times. Okay, all right. What was and the first one? Just in Wisconsin. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right, too. Right, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was the first one you saw here? The first one I saw uh, was the Patti Lupone revival of Gypsy. Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm 37, so what would I have been? 22 when I saw that. I first went to New York in 1995 when I was 11, but my big passion at that point was Italian opera. So I went to see Aida at the Met instead of seeing uh, Julie Andrews in Victor Victoria. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Sounds like you... an egregious mistake to me. Anyway, yes, <laughs> well, maybe. But a few years ago, I worked with Julie Andrews on the, the Sydney Opera House um, revival of My Fair Lady. So I like, kind of made up for not seeing her in Victor Victoria. <laughs> Did you tell her you didn't see her, uh, that you went to Aida instead? <laughs> Did you bring it up uh, to her? I didn't tell her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I talked to her about the Americanization of Emily, and she was very excited because she's very proud of that film, and uh-huh. nobody talks to her about that. Right, right. Well, that's good to know if any of us run into Julie Andrews. We'll be sure to mention that. Thank you. That's a good tip. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dominic, I want to thank you so much for uh, spending some of your Sunday afternoon with us. Uh, We really appreciate you uh, joining us. Uh, Dominic's new book, The Big Parade, Meredith Wilson's Musicals from the Music Man to 1491, is uh, from Oxford University, is published by Oxford University Press. You can have a link to that in the show notes and get it anywhere. It seems like you can buy it all over the globe. So that's wonderful. Dominic, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 
Off-Broadway Radio is being brought to you today by Upstart. Off-Broadway is already back, and Broadway will be back in just a matter of weeks. Tickets are on sale for all the must-see shows, Town, Passover, and Waitress, but you are carrying high credit card balances and you feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of debt. Upstart can help you regain your footing and get things back on track. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash broadway. That's upstart, U-P-S-T-A-R-T, dot com slash broadway. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based upon your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash broadway. We'd like to thank Upstart for continuing to support Broadway Radio. Okay, so Peter and Michael, you both got to see uh, Rick McKay's Broadway, The Golden Age, which uh, for a while there we weren't sure was ever going to see the light of day after Mr. McKay's passing a few years back. So, uh, uh, Michael, why don't you get us started on Broadway, The Golden Age? Yeah, actually, it's Broadway Beyond the Golden Age. Oh, that's right. <laughs> the the um, Broadway, The Golden Age was the name of the that's first right. film, and this is this a sequel uh not completely sure um i believe i you know I, i'm not sure of any of this but i had read and heard that rick mckay had planned two follow-up films to the first one uh and apparently he had a screening of um a version of a film that was much longer than uh, this completed f- film, uh, which was aired on PBS, has been airing on PBS, and I, I guess is available uh, elsewhere. Uh, and, th- you know, th- this film was heroically uh, completed by uh, his friends and colleagues and co-producers after Rick's very sad and untimely death. Uh, completely unexpected. Uh, so I think they deserve all credit. Uh, I, I, you know, I have heard complaints that this uh, film, as it aired, is much shorter than the first one, and uh, other complaints about it. But I, I don't know how Rick necessarily um, intended to split up whatever interviews and, and footage he had collected among, as I, as I say, he was planning to do two other films as, as far as I understand. And then other people say that he was also planning maybe separately um, a film entirely on the creation and phenomenon of a chorus line. Uh, and indeed th- this film Broadway beyond the golden age has uh, two segments basically on, on the a chorus line, the creation of it, uh, you know, the, the whole taping of all those interviews with all of those dancers, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, the epic uh, record breaking uh, performance at which a chorus line became the longest running show in Broadway history, including a great deal of footage of that um, 
event. And I would say, honestly, that 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 alone would be worth <laughs> watching Broadway Beyond the Golden Age, because I've never seen um, that much footage from from that event. Uh, it's it anyway. I, I, I'm I'm very very happy that it that it exists at all, and I think that whoever did put it together did a wonderful wonderful job overall. Uh, it's it's um, very wistful uh, in a way because aside from Rick's untimely death, there are so many people that he interviewed, uh, talking heads who are now no longer with us, uh, you know, and have died in in that period between the time of the, obviously that he filmed them and and now uh, I there are so many, but I just made a quick list: uh, Lillian Montevecchi, Marge Champion, Jerry Orbach, Tammy Grimes. Robert Guillaume, Tab Hunter, Tony Stevens, Tommy Walsh, uh, and Armelia McQueen. Um, as I say, I'm sure there are many more. Um, the uh, the the format of this film is that it's basically um, uh, sort of it, there are sections on uh, each section on a, a a famous anecdote or a famous story in Broadway lore. Uh, so, for example, there's a um, a, a section on the uh, the that incredible night, uh, opening night of Forty Second Street, the original production, when uh, David Merrick came out after the curtain call and announced that Gower Champion had died that afternoon, uh, apparently with few, if any, of the cast. Uh, having been told of that, and certainly the audience not having been told of it, of course, created a sensation, and it was uh, front page news and on every TV newscast that night, and got an incredible amount of publicity for the show. And people have always argued whether it was a terrible thing for uh, Merrick to do or or not, and I'm sure that argument will continue. Um, but there is a whole section on that and in interviews with Jerry Orbach and Tammy Grimes and Wanda Richard and Leroy Reams about, oh, and Carol Cook about how they all felt and how, how they how shocked they were and what an incredible, amazing, indescribable experience it was. Um, there's also footage, and here Here's an interesting thing, and I don't know why they did this. I think this is one of the flaws of this film. For some reason, they have the footage of the announcement, but when they get to uh, Merrick announcing the death, uh, he's, his voice is dubbed. <laughs> um, it's clearly dubbed uh, by somebody else. And I think, I assume the reason for that is that uh, if you watch the actual clip, which I have sent uh, to James as a YouTube link, and you can watch. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, Merrick's uh, uh, announcement was barely audible because he had no microphone and he's not an actor. Uh, so I think that's why they had him dubbed, but I don't know why they chose that solution. I, I, couldn't they have just turned up the volume way, way up, uh, you know, at, at that point uh, or something like that, or maybe processed it in some way. I, I thought that was a, a strange thing to do, but it's still um, wonderful that they include a whole section on that, that event because it was, uh, you know, a once in a lifetime thing. So many other things. There are many um, stories. I, I, I guess I'd heard most of the stories in the, this film that are covered in this film, but not covered in such detail. For example, the famous story about how Jane White, um, who was 
at least part African-American. And she uh, was up for the role of the queen in the original production of Once Upon a Mattress. Uh, But basically, uh, as Mary Rogers and and others discuss, um, George Abbott uh, did not want to cast an African-American in that role in in an all-white company because he just thought that it would be too distracting or whatever. So incredibly, Jane White, although she was the daughter of Walter White, who was the head of the NAACP, was asked to play the role in whiteface. (laughs) And she did because she wouldn't they wouldn't have given her the role otherwise. And, you know, she just she justifies it. And she says, well, you know, I the way I looked at it is uh, uh, Lawrence Olivier wore, you know, a false nose and a wig and a hump when he played Richard III. And and so we're actors and we can we can play people other than ourselves. But it, it's a fascinating story. And there's footage of um, Once Upon a Magic from actually the Gary Moore show, I think. Uh, it's not from the TV production. Um, so I had never seen that footage either. Um, and then there's other wonderful stories about uh, the chorus line, as I said. Um, John, Our friend John Rubenstein is in it, uh, talking about Pippin and how the creation of that television commercial for Pippin basically saved the show because uh, it was it did not get great reviews and it was not doing that well uh, when it first opened. And that uh, that incredible commercial is uh, credited with putting it over the top and, and giving it a very long run. And they interview all three of the people uh, in that commercial, Ben Vereen, and then the two dancers uh, in that that little dance, uh, that incredible dance in, the, in that scene, uh, Pamela Souza and Candy Brown. And Candy Brown, let me tell you, is interviewed quite a bit um, in this film, and she is quite a pistol. So you're going to watch it, want to watch it for her, if nothing else. Um, lots of other, I won't go on, but lots of other great stories. One thing, uh, again, I, I uh, you know, I think I know a fair amount about Broadway history, but you'd never, you know, you, there's always something else to learn. And for example, uh, did either of you guys know this, that um, uh, in Bye Bye Birdie, Put on a Happy Face was originally written for Cheetah Rivera to perform? Yeah, yeah, I did. In fact, um, that came up uh, at a discussion with, um, I wish I could remember the name. There's an organization that does musicals for kids. And they did Bye Bye Birdie mm. and um, and they put it in the, the original place. Um, and they felt that it was a better thing to do rather than do English teacher. Be- uh, the song that Cheetah Rivera does have to start the show um, because um, the idea of singing about being an English teacher uh, to kids might be a little off-putting while put on a happy face is something everybody can um, relate to. And uh, it, it was kind of funny when you, it worked very well in the spot. It makes perfect sense that Albert. Now, if you saw the movie by Bye the issue is completely different. And what I mean is in um, the movie of Bye Bye Birdie, Albert hopes to sell a song to Conrad Birdie in the stage show. He has been writing for Conrad Birdie and has been doing very well. Now that Conrad's going into the army, he's going to lose his meal ticket. So, uh, but Rosie figures at least he'll get one more chance out of um, 
one uh, last kiss. So um, so he's depressed when she comes in and she sings, put on a happy face. And uh, and then, of course, delivers the news that she has this scheme that will probably do very well. At least he'll get one more million seller gold or platinum record out of it. So um, it, it really does work very well there. And when you think of it, I mean, it's shoehorned into the show in a strange way, because what it is as as of now is that Dick Van Dyke is trying to cheer up a girl who's miserable about the fact that Bertie is going into the army. And she's not Kim. She's just an arbitrary, sweet <laughs> Apple, Ohio kid. You know, and the point is what happens at the end of the number is he bangs into a piece of scenery and she starts laughing. And that's when she puts on a happy face because something injurious happened to him. I don't think that's so hot, frankly. And um but I understand uh, the patter song of English teacher. You know, it's funny when Charles Strauss was running the ASCAP workshop, he would always say uh, when somebody uh, wrote a song, you know, I always judge songs by the fact if I met this person at a cocktail party and this person started giving these sentiments to me, would I be interested or would I want to get away? <laughs> and I always thought, Gee, if somebody came up to you at a cocktail party and said his going in the army is the best thing he could do. Now you're free to start to do what you wanted. To. I mean, you know, really, uh, I would think Charles Strauss would walk away. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, it uh, so put on a happy face. I, I do think works very well in that spot. Well, uh, regardless, I had never heard that it was mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. any. Of I that. hadn't until then. Not until then did I. Yeah. And also, uh, um in in line with that, uh, both Dick Van Dyke and Cheetah Rivera are interviewed in Broadway Beyond the Golden Age, and they talk about how he was almost fired uh, out of town. Uh, the producers didn't think he was quite cutting it, and supposedly it was uh, Gower Champion who convinced mm-hmm. them to to you know to give him a chance and said he would be fine. But uh, that was when. They they took that number and gave it to him, uh, and Gower came up with the 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 whole routine that you just described. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, probably if it hadn't been for that, he 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 would have been sacked. So that that's that was amazing. And and Dick uh, said that he didn't find this out until years later when March Champion told him, you know, you were almost fired. <laughs> so um it's incredible you know what you what what you could find out uh from these people and that's why these oral history interviews are are so invaluable and and again uh, would be reason alone to watch these documentaries uh, of Rick McKay's even if there was no footage um none of the wonderful footage that he come up came up with including in this case I didn't know there was any footage whatsoever of Liza Minnelli in Chicago. Neither did I. But uh, and it's unfortunately not great quality, but it's still something. It's there. Uh, it's mo. It's most, if not all, of the hot honey rag, mm. uh, and a little bit with Cheetah, and a little bit of uh, nowadays with Cheetah. So mm-hmm. it's it's. I mean, I, I as I said before, I saw Liza and Cheetah in the show. I did not see Gwen, but I, I never too. thought I would exactly ever see. Yeah. I never thought I would see uh, any footage of that whatsoever. No, my experience as well, and uh, that's the one that made me cry. Um, mm. And y- y- yes. It does seem as if the uh, documentary is shorter than we expected it to be. But I guess, you know, we'll have to look at always leave them wanting more because they certainly did uh, leave us wanting more. And uh, Michael, um, yes, indeed. Watching these people who are no longer with us. Mm. I'll add to your list. Um, yes. Charles Nelson Riley, Mary Rogers, 
Beatrice Souther, Kay Ballard, yep. Annette Fabre, Ben Gazzara, Robert Goulet, Tammy, oh, you said Tammy Grimes, that's right. Um, Julie Harris, Alice Platon, Elaine Stritch, Hal Prince. So really, this was um, quite a thing. It was so sad, you know, to see them all animated. Sure. Nobody, nobody was, you know, seemed sickly. Nobody seemed like on death's doorsteps. So it was really just so poignant to see these people uh, under these circumstances. Um, but uh, yes, uh, Rick McKay's beyond uh, the golden age. Fine. But um, Jamie DeRoy and Jane Klain certainly uh, deserve a great deal of credit, too. Uh, Absolutely. Jamie, Jamie DeRoy, um, who is a uh, Broadway producer of great note, has won Tony's. And Jane Klain, uh, who's um, a noted uh, Broadway critic and historian who works at the Paley Center. And of course, therefore, um, has a lot of this material. She's indefatigable at tracking things down. <laughs> indefatigable. I mean, whenever you see her, she says, you know what I'm looking for now? And um, the next time you see her, she's found it. I mean, there are still a few holy grails that she has, of course, don't we all? But um, yeah, the two- only one she hasn't found is the uh, Ethel Merman TV, Annie Get Your Gun. So if right. anybody's got it under <laughs> their bed. Please call Jane. <laughs> I was with a group of people the other night. Uh, we, we had our Christmas party. Yes, I know it's August, but of course, there's been a pandemic. We had our Christmas party. We gave gifts to each other, this, that, and the other thing. And um, I said at the end, another year of not having any get your gun or Patricia Routledge doing not in your Nelly from the Ed Sullivan show. So um, back to the movie. Um, yes. Um, I, I, it started with there's no business like show business, which um, in a way seems wrong because, you know, uh, that's from the previous uh, documentary era. But, but, you know, it, it is perfectly fine to have that um, uh, classic song, you know, uh, even was in the 40s because it's always a pleasure to hear it. So, well, also it was uh, t- uh, Tom Wopat singing it from the revival. So maybe you could justify it that mm. way. <laughs> I didn't realize that, I have to say. Um, so, uh, it doesn't move in linear fashion. It it, it does pretty no. much start in 1959 when George Abbott said to Mary Rogers, uh, yes, I will do Once Upon a Mattress, but I only have May open. And if you can do it by <laughs> May, you know, I'll do it. Uh, because I, I imagine what he's talking about is the Fiorello was going to rehearsal not that much after it. So, and this, you know, you've heard Parkinson's law that says works expands to fill the time available for its completion. In other words, if somebody says, I want it by Tuesday. You do it by Tuesday. But if somebody says you want it by Thursday, you would get it to him by Thursday, even though you could have done it by two. Well, anyway, they got it done. And I mean, getting Abbott was really something because, you know, he had had five musical hits that decade already. Wonderful Town, Me and Juliet. Yes, it paid back. And that's the definition of a hit. Um, Pajama Game, Dan Yankees and New Girl in Town paid back as well. So the idea of getting George Abbott, the esteemed George Abbott, even for somebody like Mary Rogers, who God knows who was a little girl and as a teenager who she saw walking into her um <laughs> i imagine central where they live central park west probably um because her daddy of course was richard rogers so uh, but still getting mr rabbit as he was always called um really was something so uh so they got it done and um it was fun to hear leslie and warren as well as Liza Minnelli talked about the fact that they went to see Bye Bye Birdie as kids. And um, that's what they decided that they wanted out of life. Um, you would think that Liza Minnelli might have thought of that earlier, given the fact who her mother was, but that's perfectly fine. As it turns out, 
Um, Leslie Amaran got there first. She was in 110 in the shade when she was still in high school. She had to leave class early on uh, Wednesdays to do the matinee. And um, so uh, she got there before Liza Minnelli did because Liza Minnelli didn't get there till um, 65, though, of course, Liza Minnelli was the lead in Floor of the Red Menace, while um, Leslie Ann Warren only had a supporting role, a tiny role, a role that doesn't even appear in the original property, The Rainmaker. Um, and um, so Liza got the Tony and Leslie Ann Warren um, got the job earlier. And um, we also heard Charles Nelson Riley, who I mentioned, uh, talking about the fact that uh, while indeed he was a, um, an ensemble member, um, every Thursday night, he got to play the part of Mr. McAfee in Bye Bye Birdie because um, Paul Lind, who was the usual guy doing it, was a regular on the Perry Como show. You're pardoned if you've never heard of Perry Como, but um, he was he was a big star then. He was on TV for a lot of years. Some of you may even have Perry Como's recording of Mr. President, the Irving Berlin musical, because RCA Victor was so embarrassed at not snagging this obvious smash hit that they did their own album with the aforementioned Kay Ballard, by the way. And um, so uh, it's funny that, you know, uh, there was Paul Lind being on the Perry Como show when he usually was singing about the Ed Sullivan show. So um, that was uh, fun as well to uh, put two and two together there in that way. And um, what else? What else? Um <clears throat> Yeah, I, I was very, very moved by the Liza Minnelli thing. And I think that has much to do with the fact that I was there and I didn't expect. I only learned the day before that I was going to be seeing her. Mm. And, but one of the, but there's no album, by the way, of um, Liza doing Chicago, but she did do three songs, um, tour on a 45, as we called single records in those days. And one of them was My Own Best Friend, which was kind of interesting because in the show, she sang it as a solo, but when Gwen Verdon was in the show, she shared it with Cheetah Rivera. And Cheetah has told me a few times, um, various degrees of disappointment slash anger at how she felt about that. Um, at times she looks at the glasses half full saying, look, we needed her. The show wouldn't have run if, uh, if we didn't have her at other times, she says, you know, I get a little sick and tired of being so agreeable. <laughs> you know, when people ask me to do things I don't want to do. Mm. So, and who can blame her? So anyway, Liza recorded my own best friend and me and my baby. And what's really ironic is she also recorded all that jazz, which is Cheetah's number again. <laughs> you know, not that it, she took it away from her in the show, but nevertheless, uh, that's one. the saddest part of the show, of course, was Ken Page, Charlene Woodward, and Amelia McQueen talking about yes. here they are being great stars. Everybody's going crazy, standing up at the end of Ain't Misbehaving. They're at the Long Acre Theater on 48th Street. They go to 8th Avenue to get a cab, and cab drivers will not pick them up because they are black. The, I don't know if you know the movie Wiz Papa, which is a very, very dark comedy, but anyway, uh, don't ask me why I know why, but I'm not going to go into it because it's too long. Um, at one point, our hero is dressed as a gorilla and he wants to get a cab and there's a black woman in front of him and the cab goes right to the gorilla rather than the black woman making the statement that they would rather have an animal in the car than a black person. And this story was second cousin to that as they all talked about the fact that they had to get white people to hail the cab and then they'd get in. And Ken Page talked about the fact that um, one cab driver was none too pleased at this bait and switch, you know? So, um, so that was, um, that was of more the moderate interest as well. And um, 
So we did get to see um, some of uh, 42nd Street itself, uh, some of the uh, uh, Lullaby of Broadway number that um, that really was um, something. And, you know, really, um, it's funny that he has that line. Um, this is the biggest Broadway musical uh, that Broadway has seen in 20 years. Because in essence, 42nd Street was there were 47 people in that cast. Now, compare that with the current musical six. Uh, mm. I imagine you're going to be able to infer how many people are in the musical six. Um, so <clears throat> there was that. And lest anything get too sentimental, by the way, you know, that uh, people thought, oh, this was so sad to hear about Kawa Champion. We did hear that Ethel Merman's reaction, well, was, well, if you got to go, that's the way to go. So, um, <laughs> um, and it was it, for the chorus line section, it was really interesting to hear um, Kelly Bishop say that uh, at that first taping session, um, Michael Ben said, look, ladies don't have to give their age. She said, why not? You know, let's all be treated equally. And she said, I'm going to be 30 real soon, and I'm real glad. And that line actually wound up in the in the show itself. And of course, she says it there too. And little did she know that she'd be saying it in the show and would win a Tony for that performance as well. Um, there was a wonderful moment during a rehearsal of Chorus Line. I'm sorry, it was the rehearsal of the big um, um, event, the uh, performance 3389. Uh, um, that was done in 83. And um, so anyway, everybody's rehearsing again. And therefore, Patricia Lopez is going to sing What I Did for Love. And Priscilla, uh, what I say? Patricia. You know, I do that a lot. <laughs> That's right. Um, I feel bad. She's such a nice woman, too. That's right. Anyway, um, so uh, Ms. Lopez um, got um, the chance to do the song again. And as soon as she sang Kiss Today Goodbye, she started weeping. Mm. And what was really something, of course, in the next section, she has to sing, look, my eyes are dry. And everybody laughed because, mm -hmm. of course, they weren't. You know, um, that was an amazing event. I did not go to the actual performance. I was invited to the dress rehearsal. And in a way, that was a better one to go to because they actually did the one number again. And again, um, 300 odd people were involved in it. Um, they couldn't fit everybody on the stage, even by buttressing the stage with um, big pillars and what have you underneath so it wouldn't cave in but they came into the audience as well and you know having those people in those uh champagne gold um suits was really something but what happened was after it was over michael bannon came on and said look there's a show now on nbc called the big show and they're going to run this tonight so now we're going to do it for them so you're going to get to see that number again which was really so tremendously exciting um uh, so uh, so yes um i will admit that um you have if you see this on PBS, um, the way it was run when I saw it, yes, you have uh, time to go out and get something to eat and come back during the pledge breaks, which were enormously long, I felt. But um, it, everything else was well worth waiting for. And how nice to have Jonathan Groff hosting it. Yeah, it, very good to have someone from the younger generation. And also there were a few other young people, too, uh, who uh, came in. They were asking for money more than anything else. But nevertheless, they were there. And um so yeah, it, it is nice. Um, we hear youth must be served, and of course it must. But nevertheless, uh, what we did see was that youth was willing to serve this project, which was mm. terrific. So Broadway Beyond the Golden Age, uh, I have a link to the PBS website where it says that you can stream it. I'm not sure if it's going to be available in all areas, but, uh, you know... <laughs> 
your mileage may vary. So click on the link and see if you can watch it there. If you haven't been able to see it on your local PBS affiliate, uh, but what a what an amazing uh, an amazing film that just it. Uh, I'm hoping that there we have another generation of Rick McKay's coming up that can take a look at uh, where he left off in the '80s uh, until today. Mm-hmm. So, Michael. You uh, got to see that less famous Michael. That uh, Michael, <laughs> what's it? What Feinstein? What's it? he's? You know, he's got <laughs> that uh, that that fifty four below thing, and he's doing his summertime swing show. So tell us, how is this uh, Mister Feinstein doing these days? Oh, it's great, and he's uh, there for two weeks. Uh, you know, he was there this week, and he'll be there next week. So you can catch up with him uh, next week if you if you like. Um, and yes, uh, it's called Summertime Swing, although by no means uh, are all of the songs in this set list swing. Uh, Michael's musical director is the great Ted Firth. And um, I'll just run down some of the uh, more famous songs that you might know. It's, he opens it with It's a Most Unusual Day, uh, Almost Like Being in Love, You and Me Against the World, The Trolley Song, you belong to me mm-hmm. um is you is or is you ain't my baby mm-hmm. and uh at the end there was an epic sinatra medley that the audience just went absolutely bonkers for uh it's always great to see michael perform and especially in that club um that bears his name and uh a great time was had by all i i've really seen some so many wonderful things at 54 lately and i I hope to continue and uh, this is another place uh, as peter mentioned before where they're very good um you will have to show proof of vaccination uh on the street uh when you get there at the door on on the street and then uh you know go go downstairs and then uh once you're seated at your table you're you're welcome to take your masks off but um they're, they're being very careful about it i think and all seems to be going really well so far so that's playing through September 6th, and I'll have a, sh- a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Uh, last week, uh, Peter talked about Merry Wives at the Delacorte, and Michael, you got a chance to see it. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I just had to, to just say briefly how much I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these adaptations, these modern adaptations don't always work, <laughs> uh, to put it mildly. I would say this one was beautifully done. Uh, the writing, the direction, everything about it. Uh, and Jacob Ming Trent as Falstaff is just mm-hmm. one of the most one of the most enjoyable performances mm-hmm. I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But the, everything about it, the design, uh, the 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 music, the the, the direction, the, the the movement, the choreography. Uh, it's not a musical, but there's quite a lot of music and you know movement and pseudo choreography in it. I, I thought it was. Just really, really great. And and um, another neat thing about it is that um, this is one of those shows where uh, two or three people play multiple roles. And I I will confess that I didn't realize that until the end of the show <laughs> uh, because they did it so very, very well. Also, the night I was there was a beautiful night and I didn't expect to be there because it, it had the forecast had been horrendous, but it, it turned out not to be true as forecasts uh, rarely are true anymore. Uh, I'm finding. Uh, so I, 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 it was a, gorgeous night uh when i didn't expect to be there at all but it, but it was beautiful and also they were taping uh or 
recording um, the show that night for, for PBS. Um, and I think that was the first time I've ever been in the park for one of those uh, performances that were being recorded. So I, I told a friend I was with, well, make sure you laugh really loud uh, <laughs> you know, at, at a, you know, a particular joke and remember when it was so you can listen for yourself <laughs> when, when they hear it. Uh, but it was, oh, and, and Peter, um, thanks for not spoiling the um the reveal at the, the at the end the, mm-hmm. the set mm-hmm. the well what happens with the set i won't i won't say anything more. right and mm-hmm. uh, and uh this does continue uh, i'm normally in in normal years as i think all our listeners know they do two shows in the park but this year uh, i mean last year there was none because mm-hmm. of covid and that was mm-hmm. the first year since 1959 that there had not been shakespeare in the park uh but this year they decided to do one i guess just to make things a little easier, maybe save a little money, et cetera. Uh, but they're running it much longer. And this one continues, I, I just checked, through September 20th. Mm. So you have all that time to try to get there if you uh, if you would like. And I, re- I strongly, strongly urge you to do so. Okay. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayvideo.com. When you get there, there's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? It's a play that opened on the same day that Oklahoma did, only many years later in Off-Broadway. Unlike Oklahoma, it wasn't a musical, and it only ran 16 performances, but this play included a woman who would win a Tony only a year after the play had closed. More to the point, if this play hadn't been produced, and she and one of the co-producers hadn't met, someone else would have won an Oscar 30 years later. What's the play? Who won the Tony? Who was the co-producer? And who won the Oscar? Uh, the play is called Someone's Come hungry someone's coming hungry <laughs> you're pardoned if you've never heard of it um it opened on march 31st 1969 uh starring blythe danner who'd win a tony the following year for butterflies are free uh, danner caught the eye of co-producer bruce paltrow they married and gave birth to a daughter named gwyneth who won the oscar in 1999 for shakespeare in love so Paul Witte reclaimed his first place crown, followed by Tony Janicki, Carrie Winslow, Brigadoon, J. Aubrey Jones, and Jack Leshner. Um, I thought of a really frighteningly complicated one, but I think I, I may never use it or I may use it next week. So I'm going to give a really simple one. At least, let me say this, it's only one sentence long. So at least that. What was supposed to happen on Broadway on November 17th, 1987? but didn't. Maybe Mary Lou Hannah would know. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> uh, before we get on to the musical moment, I wanted to throw in here uh, that one of our listeners, Rob Johnston, has created a T-shirt called Entre Act, the 
the intermission is over. Ah, and, nice. Uh, it is nice. really wonderful, and some of the proceeds of the shirt are going to go to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS and the Actors Fund. Um, and we have a link to that in the show notes as well if you want to uh, purchase this uh, T-shirt and uh, show your support for these wonderful organizations and our fellow listener, Rob Johnston. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, what's in this week's musical moment? Well, in honor of uh, Dominic McHugh's book on Meredith Wilson, I thought we would showcase My White Knight uh, from the original cast album of The Music Man as sung by Barbara Cook. Now, this song, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, uh, some people uh, cling to this conspiracy theory (laughs) that it was written by Frank Lesser. Um, But first of all, I asked Barbara Cook point blank (laughs) Uh, some years ago, if that were true. And she said, Frank Lesser didn't write a note of that song. (laughs) And I said, and I said, oh, I said, really? I said, because, you know, many people say, and she said, Frank Lesser didn't write a note of that song. I said, well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, now I'm told we didn't get to discuss it, uh, unfortunately, with, with Dominic, um, in our love, in our wonderful discussion with him today, but I am told that he debunks the theory mm-hmm. uh, in the book uh, with uh, by quoting, you know, uh, um, all of these early drafts of the song, uh, and and uh, and and also uh, we had heard another reason that it it sounded like it wasn't true uh, was that Barbara Cook had performed an early version of the song. Uh, on in was it her show at Lincoln Center? I think. I think so. Yeah. Anyway, she performed it somewhere. Uh, so that's one more reason to to think, uh, you know, to to have no reason to believe that Frank Lesser really wrote it. Um, uh, and so <laughs> that is the uh, that is the uh, song we're focusing now. Uh, oh, yeah. One more reason people cling to that conspiracy theory is that the bulk of the song was rewritten uh, for the movie version of The Music Man. Uh, and it was retitled Being in Love and only the, the center section was retained. Uh, I, I love both songs. I, I think um you know, the people are, oh, I hate one and I love the other. I love one and I hate the other. I, I think they're both beautiful songs. But uh, it's the, the gorgeous operatic lyricism of My White Knight, I think, was really, really perfect for Barbara Cook. And that is the um, note that we would like to end this podcast on. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye.